20 Schemes is the church planting ministry of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland and Redeemer Fellowship Church in Bardstown, Kentucky. I'm Mez McConnell and this is the 20 Schemes podcast. All right, yeah, just so you know what we're doing, we're in uh, somewhere in London, I've no idea. Um, we're in East London Tabernacle Baptist Church, which is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, we're in a conference on the church and class. Uh, sponsored by, it's a church, Act 29 Church in Our Places initiative. And I just managed to grab Steve Timmis for a bit. I'm going to speak to John Stevens now. Don't sit on these glasses. I don't know who they are. Steve, they are glasses. I'm a professional. Um, Brad, we're sitting down now because we look the same size. <laughs> Can we stand up? I just look like your weird stepchild. Uh, so we've got John Stevens, who is the director of the FIEC. National director of the FIEC. Sorry, national director of the FIEC. Um, and you pastoring church now? I'm just... one of the leaders of a church called Christchurch Market Harbour. And um, one of the co-sponsors of uh, this Church in Our Places conference. And also we're going to be doing a series of um, roadshows. I think there's 10 cities throughout the UK that we've, we've booked in just to, to talk um, about... Um, some of these issues in more detail at local level. So, John, we've got a few minutes and I appreciate your time, man, because you just banged down your lunch for me. Um, interestingly, I've been a member of the FIC for 20 years. Did you know that, John? I didn't know that. Um, <coughs> way back when, and, uh, and then the FIC was very differently structured then and then it, re- it restructured. Far better, I think, now. Um, and why do you think... Um, lots of FIEC type churches, in my experience, are in communities, are either bridge communities in council estates, or some are in council estates, very few are um, growing, quite a lot of them are elderly and dying. What, what, what do you think is happening there? I think that's the product of a, a sort of long-term impact on British evangelical culture as a whole. So I think FIEC 70 years ago would have been a predominantly working class that's movement. Right, yeah. British non-conformity was um, working class and actually in reaching the nation as a whole the Anglican church tended to be more middle class, upper class, non-conformity was working class but I think over the last 70 years British society has changed rapidly. Many people who were working class have now become middle class or their children have become middle class through opportunities in education, yeah. in a sense the disappearance of the traditional working class in the UK. Yeah. And actually people have moved location, they've become much more geographically mobile than they were. And I think one of the results of that is that FIEC churches that were in traditionally working class communities have often seen um, all the young people move away. And so therefore they've become sort of older churches that are diminishing in size. And when a church loses momentum, when it loses its young people, when it loses leadership, it simply isn't capable of growing and yeah. reaching the community in the, in the way that it should do. So I think many churches have been significantly affected by social um, forces that have been slightly beyond their control. And the wider evangelical community has not recognised the impact that that is having and has not counteracted it to help those churches to become thriving gospel works yes, in those communities. Let me ask you a question because often I'll get some pushback. It's interesting when I talk about class with... Um, Conservative evangelical Christians, usually the initial thing I get is, yeah, I'm from a working class home. And I'm cool with that. I'm not here to judge who's working class and who's not. Um, I'm like, yeah, do you, but do you still live? Do you still live there? So it's interesting when you say that, that, but the overwhelming majority don't. They've moved on and are upwards. So they may not put it like that, but you, you know what I'm saying. How do we, how do we reverse 
what seems to me, and I've been in evangelical circles 20 years now, and, I, and, I, and I'm a subject to the same temptations myself, that seems to be a, a, a middle-class culture that is always about being upwardly mobile, because that, it seems to me, that culture is stopping huge resources and people coming back into our communities. I think that's a massive challenge because I think people are naturally aspirant. Yeah. Most people have a culture, they want to live out their culture. Yeah. I think actually a particular pressure is kids. When you want to bring your kids up, you want to be aspirant for your children. And I think for most people, they don't want downward social mobility. And even when you hear government talking about its policies, nobody ever speaks about the possibility of downward mobility. So even in this era of um, uh, austerity, one of the things that's been questioned is the fact that living standards are not increasing, people won't be better off than a previous generation. So it is massively countercultural to want to, um, in a sense, go sort of further down and to have a downward mobility rather than a, an upward mobility. But the gospel calls people to do that. God calls people to do that. So at one level, the gospel ought to be challenging, not necessarily everybody in the culture, but at least some people in the culture, to see that as, their, as his calling on their lives and to be willing to go and serve for the sake of the gospel. I want, I want to push you on something, right? Because you've, you've used the phrase several times now, downward social mobility. What does that mean? Well, I think in the context, I mean, that's a sociological term that's used, but it's basically people choosing to adopt a lifestyle which will be less affluent, um, that will uh, mean that they don't have the same consumer products that they might have, the same opportunities that they might have. So they are sacrificing a quality of life and a certain level of life in terms of affluence. So, uh, that, yeah, okay, because here's what you need to understand. When you say that, we hear an attack on our culture. Yeah, yeah. That you're saying, oh, no, we're moving down from here, middle-classness, down into scumminess. Because that phrase is never ever used, I've never heard it used when a missionary is going overseas to a new culture that's different to theirs as downward social mobility, even though in a f it's the same thing. And so c can you understand why some guys within our constituency that would be, that would have some alarm, but I know you don't mean it, but I'm just trying to educate you. When, as soon as you say that, that immediately sets alarm bells ringing. I think there's a couple of things, I, I do understand that. Um, and I think on the other side of that, the people who are making that step also feel that that's what they're doing. So yeah. at one level, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. And I think there's a massive difference going over into a situation overseas. Because I think when you go over to a situation overseas, you enter into that culture, but you never change your own identity. You still retain your own primary identity, and you are, in a sense, a visitor to that culture. Yeah. I think when you're going to a different ministry context and different culture, in effect, what is your own sort of nationality? You feel under much more pressure that it's your identity that's got to change, and therefore you're giving something up. So in some ways, I think you can go overseas in many instances as a missionary and yet retain your own primary culture. You keep a, a church at home, you send your yeah, kids well, to I, I, yeah. schools. Um, I disagree to some degree. Okay. So my co-pastor, Andy, he won't mind this, Manbag, Mr. Downtown Abbey, he's famous for it. Um, he would call himself upper middle. He doesn't like to be called middle, okay? And um, we joke with him. He's a guy who has not changed his identity in the slightest. Um, obviously he's changed the way he communicates, obviously he's given up things he could be doing with his life, he's bringing his children up in the scheme, etc, etc, which he may, if you ask him actually, I don't think he thinks that's a big sacrifice at all, but, um, but he's managed to maintain his identity and being in the culture long enough now to actually, yeah, everyone knows, 
he's bosh. But we all love him for it. Do you understand what I mean? And so I think that, I think you can maintain your identity. I'm sure you can. I think the best people to do it are those who will be able to do that. Yeah. I think it's just a factor that prevents more people willing to do that, but that's what they fear that they would have to do. Um, and therefore that makes them kind of reluctant. They don't understand that maybe they can retain their identity and function in How that How would situation. they change their identity? Because I'm, I'm fascinated, because obviously I'm not middle class, so for me it's just like, I can see what you're saying, because in a way I had to adapt and adjust to the majority culture of the church as a guy coming from my background, right? I don't know if you hear my first talk this morning, but it was quite a, a war going through. Not, and not in any way people were unkind to me, it was just a cultural war in my mind largely. So in what ways would people have to give up some of their identity if they were going to come and live and work in a council estate? Um, I've never done it, so at one level I don't know um, on the ground, but from my perception from the outside of what I think people fear, our culture is made up of a whole variety of the things. It's the things we enjoy, it's the things we value, it's the aspirations we have for our children, it's the clothes we wear, the food we eat, it's how we determine our sense of success and self. Um, and those can become idolatrous, but that for every one of us, we're yeah, to yeah. some degree culturally located, and we find to some degree our identity in those things. And I think every culture has a tendency to take a view that its cultural preferences are better than others. I think oh it's, yeah, we're all ethnocentric, right? So effectively, I think what people feel they're being asked to do is to, um, so in a sense, abandon their cultural preferences and adopt a different set of cultural preferences and to value things differently. I, I think people find that quite difficult to do and a quite difficult step to take. So they might fear that it's, it's not just about learning to communicate with others, but it is actually in some ways changing their whole valuing system of what they think is good, what they think is preferable. Um, and they find it, I think, quite hard to do that. So. Um Talk to me about the FIEC, because the FIEC have been really good to us um, in the last few years particularly, um, and financed a building for us in, in, in Bingham, which is now being used really successfully, you'd be pleased to know, um, and we'll make sure you get an invite once the church launches, hopefully next year. Um, you've given in finances to help train particularly our, some of our women and some of our, our pastors. So I've got to be honest, you guys are the only ones who've been giving us money in the UK in the last few years. Um, but we, we, I mean, we've had meetings, haven't we, behind the scenes about what more can be done institutionally in terms of the FIC and how can we, instead of just being complainers and receivers, bring something to the table that helps us shape something that helps us equip, train, think through some of these issues, revitalise some of these churches in the FIC. What, 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 what are some of the things you think that, 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 that the FIC could help with? Well, first off, the FIC is a family of 600 churches yeah. united by core gospel beliefs. Those churches are in a wide variety of different contexts, uh, ministry contexts, um, spread across the country um, as a whole. I'm encouraged that sort of uh, many of the churches that are working in hard places are also part of FIEC and are part of our wider church family. Our conviction is we think that if we're going to reach the nation for Christ, those churches need to work together in genuine partnership. And what we want to see is thriving gospel churches in every community. I think we feel convicted that we know that British conservative evangelicalism is predominantly a middle class movement and that 45% of the people live in um, working class communities and have much less opportunity to hear the gospel. 
and that's also true of rural communities where 14 percent of the population live and they are unreached it's true of those in sort of black and ethnic minority communities that they're less reached and because we've got a gospel heart we inevitably want to see the gospel going to the places where there's greatest gospel need so one of the things we want to do is try to harness the energy of 600 churches that have a heart for the gospel to see how they how can they work together to make sure that the gospel is going everywhere to make sure that resources are being committed to supporting ministry in the places that are least um, reached. FYEC hasn't historically had large amounts of resources to give away. We're not an organisation that controls our churches or taxes our churches to give to others. So it's not as if we're a magic money tree of resources for churches. We've got a small amount of resource that's become available to us and we've chosen to want to invest a disproportionate amount of that into the harder areas. So our training fund, probably over the last six or so years, I think we've given about 43% of that to churches that are in sort of um, harder situations, not just middle-class southern contexts. Mm -hmm. um, as you say, we've had some money from closed churches that's been available, and we've given more of that to churches in hard places because we recognise that they have uh, greater difficulty in gaining the resources that they need for their ministry. So what do we want to do? Well, I think above all else, we want to listen to those who are working in hard places so that we can learn on how we can help them in the best possible way. It's not for us to set an agenda. And I think one of the challenges in ministry is, is giving and support that's basically provided by patrons who then control. I think what we need to do is listen and understand what the needs are and how we can best support um, the work of the gospel into those areas. So some of the things we're beginning to hear that uh, are sort of we're trying to respond to are the need for resources to pay for workers, um, the need to be training people from indigenous communities to be able to work in those areas. We think that's a massively significant investment uh, we can um, make. Obviously, buildings in those areas is an issue. I think something that's becoming increasingly clear is in many of the harder communities, churches are never going to become financially self-sustaining. And so therefore, they're going to need long-term continued investment in order for those works to thrive and grow. I think ways that we can perhaps accomplish that, something that I'm really passionate about, is trying to persuade our churches that are not in harder places to partner with churches that are in those communities. So much of what we're able to do is broker and bring about church-to-church -church relationships. So just a couple of examples. We have a church in London that received a big legacy. They chose to give £50,000 of that to help a church in Liverpool that's in a hard place. I had an email just a week ago from a church, big student church, saying we really want to be supporting a church in hard places. Can you put us in touch with potential churches that we could partner with and that we um, support? We had an individual who's not from an FIEC church, from a different church network, who came to us and said, I've got £30,000 I'd like to give to a church in a hard place. We don't really have them, but you have a number of churches. Can you put me in touch with a church where that money can be well So you need to be giving the these divs my phone number, John. That's, <laughs> the, that's the bottom line. Listen, we've got a couple of minutes. I'm just going to close. Yeah, one more question. Close it with this. Appreciate you giving me your time, by the way. I appreciate behind the scenes that we're doing lots of talking and you are listening to us. And I feel like we're going to be making some progress over the coming years. I really believe that. Um, just, you've been at this gig i'm assuming you've sat in the most of the sessions yep so what's been the most surprising thing for you 
listening? Uh, uh, at one level, not a lot has been hugely surprising because I've met with most of the individuals who've been speaking. No. I think the thing that always surprises me and that I need to keep remembering is the Im amount of emotional intensity felt by those who come from harder communities and are ministering in hard communities. I think for those of us who are in middle-class backgrounds and come from that culture, we don't realise how much uh, unintentional offence we cause in the way that we speak and the way that we treat people. And I think um, it's, it's vital that we keep understanding and try to understand the degree of pain um, and anguish that the inequality that's been experienced, the lack of opportunity that's been available, and the way that the wider Christian community has often treated those who come from a sort of a, a different background really causes. And I'm, I'm just conscious that it's so easy to unintentionally appear patronising and to give that offence. And I think very often amongst middle class Christians it's not intended. Um, and, but we simply don't understand. And how, yeah, how and, and to be fair, that. we've not attacked anyone, have yeah, we? Yeah. Um, no, not at all. What have you? What, give me something you've learned, though. So you said you're not surprised by anything, really. But have you, have you learned anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I think actually I've had Andy Prime's session hugely helpful. Actually, the the, the ways that somebody can go into yeah. a community. I think the thing that I took that was most helpful from that is the need to slow down. Um, to be able to help understand a community and be able to connect with that community. I completely empathise with the middle class desire to be as efficient as possible and I think that that is, that is possibly an idolatry within our middle class culture and to learn that you can do less but that might have more long-term impact is really helpful. Yeah. And actually I think just again from Andy the little reminder that we need to underlead I think that's actually helpful for everybody ministering in every church yeah, context. Yeah, I agree. I think most of us have been taught to overlead in order to get something that is uh, good and effective and efficient. But we don't realise that the consequence of that is we're not bringing through other leaders to be able to take on the future. So I think those for me were two things that I've heard that I think are vital for ministry in hard places, but actually I would say are transferable to yeah. the wider. Um, well, the Christian reason culture. we invited Andy, we, we did design this on purpose, we're smarter than we look sometimes, is that look, we're good at, me, me and Ian and that, we're good at, you know, these are, these are the problem areas because we've been in the culture so long, but I think the middle class guys, the best people to identify with is other middle class guys who've gone before and said, look, this is a situation. So I think they, in, in many ways, those are the guys, the first over the trenches guys that are going to be the most helpful in terms of helping us get the middle class church to understand going forward. So because people say to me, you hate the middle class and you, no, 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 no. We need guys like that to come in because they just bring a level of forensics and understanding that helps all of us to grow, right? Absolutely. And I think it was also immensely helpful to hear Sharon talking about the experience of the women from Nidri going to the FIEC yeah. Drive Conference. Yeah. Because at one level, I think bringing people together from a wide kind of cultural diversity is, is actually difficult. Yeah. And again, you don't realise what the things are that might be seen as being strange or different. We all just live in our own culture yeah. and take it for granted. So it was immensely helpful to hear that things that you might think are just obvious um, aren't to people who are coming from a different culture. Yeah. And I think that therefore means that those things just require much more thoughtfulness yeah. about how every aspect of an event or a gathering is yeah, going yeah, to, be, yeah. to be received. We don't want to get over silly do we we just all got they've got to learn what a coach i don't even know what a coach is but they've got to learn and maybe eat one listen thanks bud appreciate your time appreciate you coming to this gig as well i'm looking forward to hear what you've got to say to us thank you maybe i'll learn something right instead of being cocky all the time thanks mate. appreciate that 
With these conversations, we're trying to expose some of the issues we experience in our ministries. We hope that with honest and frank conversations, we can begin to open up on some of the hard realities of church planting and revitalization in schemes and council estates around the UK. In fact, even around the world. In this spirit, these conversations will be published completely uncut.